You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The fundamentals are there for inflation, I think, for a while. We don't necessarily need zero interest rates forever. Washington at this point doesn't want to add regulation to Bitcoin. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. In my view, you can't spend enough on infrastructure. Given the size of fiscal stimulus we've already seen, this seems like a drop in the bucket. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where the work goes on. The Senate setting up a vote on infrastructure for later this week, now that we have an actual document. And hands are ringing over evictions today after a federal moratorium expired over the weekend. Yeah, it's August. We'll talk about both of these coming up with Congressman John Garamendi, Democrat from California, who serves on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Later, we'll get insights from Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Roger Fisk. And thank you for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We begin with the most urgent matter at hand in Washington, and that is evictions. The federal moratorium we talked about Friday expired over the weekend, as many feared the House went on recess, adjourned, and there are some big questions about what happens now to millions of people who are behind on the rent, especially those living in states that do not have strong laws to protect them. Joining us to talk about this, as well as the latest on the infrastructure debate, both evolving over the weekend, is Congressman John Garamendi, Democrat from California. Welcome back, Congressman. We're glad to have you. I see your state has its own eviction moratorium. So, Tenants are protected for now. When would Californians have to worry about this? Well, hopefully uh, once this economy gets up and going uh, and we get the infrastructure things in place and the rest of the programs that we've been trying to get out of the Congress, uh, then this eviction issue will not be so big. California's moratorium ends September at the end of September, Uh, but it can be renewed. And the real issue here is, What do we make of the Delta surge? Are we back into a very, very heavy situation as we were uh, five, six months ago? If so, uh, the CDC could issue another uh, national health emergency. We'll see. But right now, the real question is, why haven't states that have had the money for five or six months not used it for the purposes of helping people with their rent during the downturn? Well, that is a great question. Do you know why? Um, election of duty, plain and simple. They don't give a hoot about people that are uh, 
going to lose their homes uh, for lack of rent. But we need to understand that for almost all of 2020 and a good portion of 2021, the first half of it, uh, there was a lockdown and the highest unemployment, uh, the most uh, precipitous increase in unemployment ever in this country's history took place and the rent $45 billion was made available by Congress in two different tranches. One was the uh, omnibus funding back in December, uh, just before the first of the year. And the second one was the rescue bill, $45 billion to help renters close the gap between when they lost their job and when they go back to work. About uh, $40 billion of that is still out there available to be spent. So come on, states. Come on, cities. You can do it. Uh, The information of some states simply have refused to do anything to help their renters, even though they had the money. We heard today from White House advisor Gene Sperling, who was asked by reporters in the briefing room at the White House, uh, why doesn't the administration just extend the ban like Nancy Pelosi has asked? He was also asked repeatedly why the money's not getting out the door on the state level, to your point And he answered that question essentially by saying that this is kind of the first time we've tried to do this nationally. Here's what he said. Our country did not have a national infrastructure for doing this. I mean, $1.5 billion went out in June. Uh, That is not nearly enough. That is certainly more than has ever happened in a month in our country. So Congress asked us to set that up for that to be imposed at a state local level. So it requires every state and local government, many of them to set up processes. So I'm not, again, I understand the challenges they were facing. Of course, if you're about to lose your home, it's it's difficult to understand these challenges, Congressman. Is this a matter of simply priming the pump or the state's just not ready? I think the state's need a big swift kick in the butt. There's no reason you couldn't be done. They know the information is readily available at every state level. Uh, Who are the uh, owners of various rental properties? Uh, certainly the large rental properties, those are readily available at the city and county level. Uh, that information could have been made available. The money could go directly to the uh, landlords or directly to the uh, tenants. It could go either way. The law was open to uh, that kind of change. They simply chose not to do it. And frankly, the federal government wasn't pushing them to get it done. Uh, among the many issues that was ignored was this one until the very last moment. So shame on the states, shame on the cities that uh, let this thing go by. They can do it. It can be done now. This And, uh, Gene, I, I love you. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. But uh, have you heard about the PPP program for businesses, huge businesses, and then the small businesses? How did that get done? It got done because the businesses were screaming for help. And Congress heard about it. The administration, the previous one, and this one heard about it. And they got the money out the door to, to the uh, businesses. But the Raiders weren't screaming, weren't crying. Uh, the uh, eviction notice, uh, the eviction stay was in place, and people lottied out, and here we are. Here we are, Congressman. Uh, so I guess the questions will remain about the best way to handle this. But I, if I'm hearing you correctly, getting that money out the door on the state level would probably happen more quickly, maybe more effectively than creating new legislation or having the White House get into a legal problem with an extension. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, yes. Uh, the Supreme Court did allow the last one. Kavanaugh was very clear. I'll, I'll do this one because we have an emergency. I'm not ever going to approve another one. Yeah. Uh, that remains to be seen. We may, very ser- we may have a very serious emergency with the Delta, but at the moment, 
um, everybody is reading the Supreme Court and saying, no, they're not going to approve another uh, extension of the uh, moratorium on evictions. But the money is out there, and uh, the cities and counties could do it. This is not a big deal. Certainly every um, – uh, the property tax rolls clearly show who, the, who has rental property up. Anyway, it can be done, and it can be done quickly. Uh, can Congress pass another law? We could, but who's going to push the money out the door? Do we bring it back in and put it in the Department of Housing or the Small Business Administration? Could be done. But then you got to set up a nationwide model that may or may not fit. In, I don't know. Alabama, so use the money we already gave California. you. Yeah, I got you. Well, the money is there. The money Congressman is there. John Garamendi talking with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Sorry for stepping on you, Congressman. I want to ask you about the infrastructure debate because you and I had a sure. what I thought was a memorable conversation about that a couple of <laughs> weeks ago when you told me that this was the infrastructure of yesterday. You weren't happy with the form that this Senate deal was taking. It's pretty similar, I think, now from when we talked about it. And I wonder if, if you would support that bill if it came to the House. Well, it's interesting. I recall very well the uh, debate I discussion I had with you. I think I surprised you by saying I was very, very concerned about what the Senate was doing. And indeed, yeah. I was. Uh, a few days later, uh, we got more information about what the Senate actually was in the process of doing. I'm going, hmm. I'll bet Joe's going to phone and ask me if I've changed my mind. And the <laughs> answer is, yeah, Joe. <laughs> uh, once we uh, got the information as to what the Senate was doing, uh, it is it is very close to what we wanted to do. Uh, it is forward thinking, not as forward thinking as the House bill, uh, but uh, most of the things that we needed are there. Some of the differences, particularly on the electrification of highways, isn't uh, sufficient. However, the policy if the policy is in place, then the uh, reconciliation bill can put more money behind it if the policy is in place. Now, late last night, 2,700 pages of law were passed out to the general public. Yeah. And I must say that there's a serious case of, of staff indigestion as they try to understand what it's all about. Uh, we'll get into the details, but uh, the uh, not just the top line, but you get down into the various sections uh, yeah, I changed my mind uh, once I saw what they were doing. Well, maybe they just listened to you and me, and they decided to do it. <laughs> well, let's just Bad let's chance. just circle this date on the calendar here. <laughs> a member of Congress saying on the air that they changed their mind. It's just, it's it's uh, it's refreshing. It's I have to admit, I don't. I don't think you're allowed to do that, though. Well, yes, I am. Uh, particularly when there's new facts, and this is the Delta thing about face masks and social distancing and all the rest. Yeah, we didn't need face masks back in uh, June and uh, July, early July, because we didn't have Delta. Now we have Delta. My God, I'm putting my face mask back on when I go to the hardware store or grocery store because the facts have changed. And in the case of uh, your previous conversation with me and, and this one, I don't know if the facts have changed, but the facts have been made available. And uh, it looks like the Senate bill is on track to answer most everything that uh, I think needs to be done building for the future. Well, yeah, that's true. There was no text at that point, to be fair. Uh, we were asking a lot of members. They said, well, show us the bill. Is there enough money for water, water resources? I know this is a massive issue for the state of California and in Northern California, where it's not only wildfires, but big agriculture, the wine industry. You need water more than most in this country, I believe, Congressman. Will this help? Well, actually, everybody needs water. There appears to be two different water uh, programs in the legislation. Uh, one is the general water, uh, clean water 
Act program that provides money for improving uh, urban water systems and some money for uh, small isolated water systems. This is lead pipe and other kinds of uh, water systems of urban. The others, uh, there appears to be $50 billion for Western water systems. Uh, that's going to be extremely important. It's for reservoirs. I suspect it will not be for on-stream reservoirs, but off-stream reservoirs, aquifers, improving uh, dam safety and other uh, expanding existing dams, things of that sort. And it's going to be extremely important for California. We have a reservoir that I've been pushing now for a decade called Sites Reservoir north of Sacramento. It is off the uh, Sacramento River, so you don't have all the problems that you have building on the river. Uh, In this one and a half million acre feet of water. If that was available today, that million and a half acre feet of water could be used uh, to address a large part of the drought problem, uh, certainly for the fish in the river as well as for uh, certain agriculture. Congressman John Garamendi, Democrat from California. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, so much for a quiet August in Washington. I know it's only the second. These are supposed to be the dog days when you can't get a a debate going. Instead, you can find a parking spot anywhere. You can find a table anywhere. But we're just getting started on this debate over infrastructure now, dealing with the evictions moratorium and new guidance on COVID. Things feel pretty busy around here today. We bring in the panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis with us this morning and Roger Fisk make that afternoon Democratic strategist and principal at New Day Strategy. Welcome to both of you. Roger, I'm going to start with you because you know that this White House would not put out Gene Sperling in front of reporters unless it was important. What does that tell you? What does that tell us about the public relations around this whole eviction moratorium expiring? Well, first off, Joe, thank you so much for having me. I love being on the show, and I also love uh, being on the show with Rick. You know, I, I would, you're correct, which is when Sperling is sent out, that's, that's really someone being sent out there to deliver some straight, sober policy talk to the, to the media. He's not really going to go down in history as, as much of a spin master. Um, and I think that I would make a point a little bit differently than they did, which is, you know, in just a system dynamics kind of way, you right now have one problem, which is how can you keep people in their homes? If you don't, if you don't figure this out, that problem becomes six or seven or eight problems. You get into it's going to manifest when you disrupt these families into school attendance, into shelters, and then the carrying capacity of people when they're in shelters. It's going to lead to work disruption. So I think what I would be saying to people would be, would you rather solve one problem? Because I would even imagine the landlords are invested in in some kind of solution, too, because if they empty all their units, who are they going to rent to? And if people had first, last in the security deposit, then they wouldn't need to move, right? So I think I would go out and say, do you want one problem or do you want seven? Because that's what we'll end up with if if all these folks get evicted. And then start to focus on like a 90 to 120 day fix. I I, I think that's the way forward. Rick, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on the optics here. The press secretary stepping aside, Gene Sperling holding forth for quite a while. I mean, he did over a half an hour, uh, close to an hour at the podium and made the point that essentially the job today, unless I'm reading between the wrong lines, was that Nancy Pelosi is wrong, that the White House cannot move on its own in this case, as the, the, the letters and 
announcements go from one side of Pennsylvania Avenue to the other. Here's what he said. I would say that on this particular issue, President's not only kicked the tires, he has double, triple, quadruple checked. He has uh, 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 asked the CDC to look at whether you could even do targeted uh, eviction moratorium that just went to the counties uh, that have higher rates, and they as well have been unable to find the legal authority for even new targeted eviction moratoriums. The message is, Rick, our hands are tied. Well, I think Roger really picked it off. I mean, uh, there, there are so many things that can spin out of control here in August if this isn't dealt with. But this should have been dealt with a long time ago. I mean, they had $46.5 billion has already been allocated for this problem, and they can't get it out the door. Uh, other states, states can actually uh, uh, extend moratoriums. We heard that, you know, from Congressman Garamondi that California's moratorium doesn't uh, end until the end of September, buying a little bit more time. But like this is a failure of the system. I mean, the system being run right now by Democrats, and I don't mean to, mean to make this a partisan thing, but like Congress could have dealt with this a long time ago. And yet Friday before uh, they leave in the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, tries to get unanimous consent <laughs> to do something about this a little late. Uh, Mrs. Speaker. So, I mean, I, th I think this is just a huge failure. And, and now everyone's trying to like spin it back. But if I were the president, I'd be on the phone with 50 governors saying, look, you got to bail me out on this thing. You don't want a disaster at your, your state level. You know, I got $46 billion to give to you uh, that, that, that is ready to go. Uh, you know, extend your moratoriums. Isn't that the strategy here, Roger? Put it on the states at this point. The congressman, Garamendi, was just making the point that we can get that money out quicker than writing new legislation, reallocating, finding some other path. Yeah, you really need executives on the state level uh, to, to push their agencies and bureaus to get this money out the door. I mean, the, the dollar figures of what's already in the pipeline is pretty stunning. And I think this is emblematic of one of the dangers that we are somewhat seeing across the board. There is a posture that some people are assuming that we're closer to the finish line than we are to the starting line on this. And we have no way of knowing if that's true. We might not be even halfway through. We could still be much closer to the starting line of this whole thing. So people need to be on essentially kind of a, in a governmental context uh, on the state level in a emergency war room footing and finding those log jams and drilling down to the sub-cabinet level and, and, and finding the accounts and finding the people that need to sign off on actually ambulating some of this stuff out the door and just going with a maximum persuade, like all systems on, uh, you know, high alert and treating this like it's a forest fire because it essentially is. Well, I guess that's true, Rick. And with what we have uh, in terms of uh, timing here is less than a minute. How much of this has to do with red tape versus politics? Is this really about bureaucracy? You know, I don't think it's about bureaucracy. I think it's a, this is actually about execution failure. Um, the money was in a pipeline. There's a system to, to distribute it. And this administration uh, didn't get ahead of it. And, and now everyone's looking at Congress for a bailout. And they, they didn't do it soon enough. We'll bring back Rick Davis and Roger Fisk in a little bit. Up next, how did we even get here? We'll spend some time with Bloomberg government legislative analyst Michael Smallberg on the origins of this new crisis. Not so new. Stay with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. White House says it's kicking the tires. Checking, double-checking, triple-checking for any possible ways to get relief to renters after the federal moratorium on evictions expired over the weekend. We keep hearing the White House and Congress had months to get it done. And we'll talk about how this whole thing started, how it went on for so long, coming up with Bloomberg government legislative analyst Michael Smallberg. Because one deadline was not enough. Washington managed to miss another one last weekend, allowing the federal moratorium on evictions to expire and creating a a new crisis potentially in the midst of COVID. The idea of millions of people losing their homes just as we enter a new surge of cases with the Delta variant, that at least is the fear. And we're joined now to talk about the background here with Bloomberg government legislative analyst Michael Smallberg. Great work uh, on the terminal here, Michael. As you remind us, the eviction moratorium was first established under a COVID relief law more than a year ago. How could this have gone on for so long? It's been extended three times. Everyone saw this coming, right? Yeah, this is a deadline we all saw coming from from a long ways away. Um, As you said, this is something that that Congress first uh, adopted back in March 2020. They actually imposed a a narrower version of this eviction moratorium that was focused on um, federally government-backed properties. Um, then the, once that expired, uh, the CDC took a, a pretty extraordinary step. Uh, under the Trump administration in September 2020, uh, the agency used its public health authority to uh, impose an eviction ban, the argument being that um, you know, keeping people in their homes would protect them from the spread of the coronavirus, uh, with the, the, you know, as opposed to kicking them out and, uh, and, and leaving them homeless or doubling or tripling up in a, in a different uh, housing setting. Um, so this is something that, uh, again, as I said, was first impo- uh, adopted by Congress and then under the administ- uh, Trump administration. The Biden administration has uh, extended it a number of times, um, but the, one of the, the, the twists now uh, recently is that the Supreme Court has also weighed in on this matter. Right. So talk uh, to me about that. How did this get to the Supreme Court? Who challenged it? So there have been a lot of challenges, um, understandably, from from landlords uh, and and real estate trade groups. Um, You know, a lot of landlords are saying that they're, of course, suffering financially now as well. You know, they they have their own mortgage and insurance payments to make, and they're not getting the rental income 
from their tenants. Um, and a lot of them said that the CDC exceeded its authority uh, by interfering in the relationship between uh, tenants uh, and landlords. Um, and so a number of lower courts have been sympathetic to those arguments. They have, um, you know, uh, no, there haven't been, no, none of the courts have actually thrown out or completely uh, blocked um, this order. But when one of these cases got to the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court ruled very narrowly in a five to four decision to keep the ban in place for now. But uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote in an opinion that, um, you know, that he would basically give the agency till the end of July, which is when it said its latest extension would run. But then at that point, you know, he said that it's got to go back to Congress to make this happen. He made pretty clear that in his view, the CDC did exceed its authority. So okay, this is so where that the White said. House is now saying the White House just on Thursday, a few days before the moratorium expired, came to Congress and said, we need you right. to step in and, and, uh, and take action. And here. we've had the back and forth going on between Congress and the White House since then. But it sounds like the White House is being honest about its lack of legal standing here, right? Does, does, does Nancy Pelosi essentially want the White House to extend the moratorium and then just deal with the court? Is that basically what she's saying? Because the White House does not have the authority here then. Yeah, the White House has said it, it, it genuinely has tried to, to explore all of its legal avenues and that it just may not have the authority to extend this any further. Um, you know, just today, the White House said it's encouraging the CDC to extend it another 30 days uh, in, in, in particular high-risk areas. Um, but, you know, one problem for, for Nancy Pelosi is that, um, you know, there, there are some disagreements even among Democrats about this issue. Um, you know, I think some Democrats are sympathetic to the argument that Congress has uh, already provided, separate from the eviction moratorium, they provided Absolutely. some $47 billion in emergency aid yeah. that was supposed to go to, to renters and tenants that were struggling. Um, and so I think a lot of lawmakers, um, although they're you know, t- deeply worried about this, the, the deadline passing and they want to take action, I think some of them are more focused on uh, looking into what's gone on with that $47 billion, because only a small fraction of that has actually made its way into the pockets of eligible right. households who are then able to, to pay their rent and, and catch up on, on all the missing payments they've made in the past, which is going to be a huge problem, of course. Uh, you know, once this moratorium ends. Yeah, we've talked to members on both sides of the aisle who have said that they've already sent the money, so it's time for the states to use it. I do want to ask you quickly in the time that we have left, Michael, about the impact of COVID. This came up today in the White House briefing with with the president's advisor, Gene Sperling. When he was asked repeatedly, what changed? How, How did you get caught off guard? Why last week? And he pointed to COVID in his answer. Here's what he said. I think really what has happened, what we are all dealing with, is that the rise of the Delta variant is particularly harmful for those who are most likely to face evictions. And as that reality became more clear going into the end of last week, I think all of us started asking, what more could we do? I think he was speaking about Congress as well with the all of us there, Michael. Now, with that said, if COVID made this more urgent and we still continue to see cases and hospitalizations rise, could the CDC have new authority acting to relieve the nation from the pandemic and therefore extend this again? That's a great question. And, and it is the right, you know, the surge of, of that Delta variant that does have the CDC uh, and lawmakers particularly worried right now. Um, I, I think some lawmakers, de- progressive Democrats in particular, are encouraging, the, are encouraging the White House and the CDC to, to, 
to really flex its, flex its muscles and, and, and try to, to extend this moratorium uh, no matter what, you know, and, and, and see how those challenges play out in the court. Um, you know, another issue here is that some states are now starting to adopt their own eviction ban. So especially with the federal moratorium running out now, uh, we may see a number of other states adopt their own, at least short-term policies, uh, to, to try to put a pause on evictions while this issue is sorted out at the federal level. Bloomberg Government Legislative Analyst Michael Smallberg, great work, and thanks for walking us back through that, Michael. It's actually very helpful to understand where you are if you know where we came from. Stay with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll bring the panel back. We'll also talk with Bloomberg's Tom Orlick about what has been going on in China with the crackdown on not just big tech, but U.S. listed shares. You probably don't need me to tell you. We'll get into it. It's our big take today, and it's next on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Xi Jinping's capitalist smackdown sparks a trillion-dollar reckoning. Bloomberg's Tom Orlick shares the byline on the big take today on the Bloomberg, and he's with us now. Tom, welcome back. This hits home for many investors holding China stocks, of course, from Baba to Didi. They've, in many cases, lost a significant amount of money, a trillion-dollar reckoning here over the past couple of weeks. You're calling this progressive authoritarianism, a president using his power to support the middle class at the expense of the fat cats and their investors. Does she see himself as some sort of Robin Hood, Tom? I think that's an interesting way of framing it, Joe. I mean, if we think about the sort of the larger sweep of China's recent history, I mean, of course, China is a strange beast. But for the last 40 years or so, there's been space for entrepreneurs and the investors that back them yeah. to drive China's development. What's happened in the last few months is there's signs that might be starting to change. It started last year with the surprise squashing of the IPO for Ant Financial. That's the financial arm of Alibaba. Since then, we've had monopoly investigations into tech giants. And then most recently, Xi Jinping saying, you know what? We don't want private capital in the education sector. Right. So we think this is a pretty significant change. As China's growth is slowing, the priority for China's leaders is shifting. They want more of the pie for China's squeezed middle class, and they don't care if that comes at the expense of a smaller share, share of the pie for the entrepreneurs and the investors. Do they not care? I've, I've heard some reports recently saying, boy, the government, Beijing, is a little bit concerned that the selling has been overdone. Maybe we said a little bit much. But I guess the question is, does China need foreign investment, U.S. investment? Or, or is that the point of this message? American investors, we don't really need you. You know, if we think back to the end of 2020, President Trump signed a bill which threatened to delist com Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges. Yep. And the motivation there was the U.S. saying, you know what, China's a geopolitical rival, and we don't want U.S. investment dollars paying for the growth of a geopolitical rival. Well, guess what? The message from Xi Jinping and from Beijing right now is, actually, we don't want your money either. 
we don't want Chinese technology companies listing in the United States taking U.S. investment dollars because we think maybe that gives the U.S. financial sector, the U.S. regulators, the U.S. government a lever which they can use to influence what's going on here in China. So back at the end of 2020, it seemed like the U.S. wanted to financially decouple from China. Now, it seems like China wants to financially decouple from the U.S. Big thanks to Bloomberg's Tom Orlick for talking with us today on Bloomberg Sound On. Thank you, Tom. We bring back the panel now, having heard this. Democratic strategist Roger Fisk, Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis. Rick, we've talked about China more than once, and I was struck hearing Tom say in this studio that China basically does not want our money, does not want American investment. I thought China needed American money. Yeah, I, I wouldn't get too carried away with the idea that China is turning its nose up to American capitalism. I mean, it's been the model with which they've tried to expand their economy and has done quite successfully. I would note that when the SEC said that they're going to start looking at, you know, disclosure of risk of government interference with China, China's like, wait a minute, we can cooperate with the SEC. We can work with regulators to make sure that that flow of funds doesn't start. So I think you see a lot of posturing. I think it's not just about capitalism here. It's also about national security. And China doesn't want its tech companies especially to, to have any influence from the West uh, in, in the data and, and the extension of their influence. And I think as much as it's about social stability and, 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 and what happens domestically with China, the national security component of this is very strong. Roger, you served for years in the Obama administration, and I'm sure you remember the first meeting between Obama and Xi. Some thought it was a new day for China, for the relationship, a leader who would bring change in the way he deals with the West. Were they wrong then, or has President Xi changed? Fascinating dynamic, right? I mean, one of the things that impacted so much is how we view time. Like, four years of a presidential administration in an American context is like a week in Chinese terms, right? Like they're, they're thinking and planning about 2040, 2060, 2080. Hmm. Um, but the same... But the same uh, assertiveness that we see in this market context is playing out, for example, with the silos that we've just discovered in the Shenzhen region. And I think China needs to understand every time that they become more assertive in one context, it makes things more problematic for them in another. Because, for example, they're still going in front of the World Bank and categorizing themselves as a developing economy. Now, when you're doubling and tripling your nuclear arsenal, which we have strong evidence that they're doing, it's very difficult to turn around and say that you're still a developing economy. So when they do things like this, or trying to decouple from the West in this way, and I agree with Rick's point, this is a lot more wind than it is rain. I think what's interesting about this in the, in the, in the domestic Chinese context is that for one of the few times you see Xi actually playing to a domestic audience in terms of a specific brand and in terms of playing to uh, specific constituencies, which is not necessarily how the Chinese government has conducted itself over the last 30 or 40 years. For the most part, it's been much more focused outward in terms of how its brand is interpreted rather than catering to domestic constituencies. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting pivot as well. I want to ask you both about infrastructure. Well, we have you here because we have an actual bill. What a headline over the weekend. Uh, now that we see text here, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. I believe our colleagues draft text 
provides a good and important jumping off point for what needs to be a robust and bipartisan process. Our full consideration of this bill must not be choked off by any artificial timetable that our Democratic colleagues may have penciled out for political purposes. Rick Davis, does McConnell play along with the bipartisan deal so his members can take credit? Are we going to see a lot of amendments, a lot of votes this week? Yeah, I think you're going to see a full tree of amendments. I think you'll see a lot of votes. I I think the process is now geared to allow McConnell's uh, uh, team, the Republicans in the Senate, to have a shot at influencing it. But but look, I mean, this is 2,700 pages of work, right? I mean, like you're going to just pick the, the surface of it uh, in the next two or three days before you try to have a, a vote before they leave for summer recess. So I, I think McConnell has already given the go-ahead mm-hmm. for this bill. His, his, his vote for uh, moving forward on it signaled that, if, if, if not anything else. And uh, I think, you know, you, you're, you're going to see a little bit of... Uh, sausage making, but this is this is a bill that's going to see the light of day, and uh, and they'll get out on time, and and it'll be considered a big win for bipartisan legislation. Huh. Rick Davis said it; they get out on time. Roger, I don't know if you agree, but is it worth it for Democrats to allow some Republican amendments to to work their way into this legislation and really call it something bipartisan? Absolutely, absolutely. Ultimately, everyone, no matter what party they're in is invested in some kind of competent narrative coming out of Washington, D.C. And what I think you're going to see now is in the kind of life cycle of legislation, this is going to now enter the Christmas tree phase, which is the fundamentals, the building blocks are all there, and now everyone wants to just put one or two ornaments on it before it, had, before it actually gets out the door. So these 1,700 pages are probably going to round off somewhere around 3,500 as everyone kind of gets into the Christmas tree phase. But fundamentally, I think this is good. And, and it is not unrelated to our China conversation, because when you look what they're doing with their airports and their ports, I mean, they're building for massive amounts of capacity that, for example, right now, our ports can't even accommodate some of the largest freighters running around the world. We've aged ourselves out of competition in a lot of ways. So this is incredibly important, and I think both sides should be able to go back home and sell it very effectively. Rick, if you're a Republican lawmaker right now, a Republican senator, I guess, to be exact, what do you need to do this week before you go home? Meet your constituents in town hall meetings. How do you take credit for the good stuff and blame everyone else for the rest? Well, you you, you got to analyze exactly what's in this bill that's going to affect your home state or your home district. I mean, in this case, senators, home state. Uh, you got to you got to get back because you're going to see your constituents. There are going to be some town halls. There are going to mm-hmm. be some things to do at home. Everyone's getting something here, you're though. Right? Have to report. Everyone's going to have something, and so. But people are going to want to know what's in it for me, right? Is my bridge going to be affected? Is my highway going to be improved? Is my broadband going to be better? I mean, you can imagine what Susan has when she goes up to Maine, where they have very little broadband distribution. They're going to want to know, are we getting it now or are we not getting it now? And Roger, if you're a Democrat, how do you position yourself for this next week? Because those Republicans are going to go home and say, you know what, just watch. They're going to spend $3 trillion when they get back to Washington, and they're going to ruin the economy with inflation. I would, I would not address that at all. I would echo Rick's points, which is to speak with uh, confidence and authority about exactly what's going to be funded in the state, put it in a kitchen table context, uh, I would frame some of my time spent in state around around visits to those communities, so you can really drive home the the kind of economic impact in a very neighborhood, house by house kind of way. 
Abinif, all the way down to going to a school that's going to be, you know, retrofitted, going to a, an off-ramp that's going to be um, updated, going to a bridge that's crumbling, et cetera. And yep. just make it very real for people. Rick Davis and Roger Fisk, two men who have advised presidents and senators, giving us their take right here on Bloomberg Sound On, a conversation you won't hear anywhere else. Meet you back here tomorrow. We'll be live from New York for the Tuesday edition. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.